0: That's indeed.com slash Blue Sports. And support the show by saying that you heard it on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Blue Sports. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: And get by Benning. Darnell Nurse left it in the corner. Gets up seven.
2: A hit with Jacoby
1: with Solani, it's given away to Solani. around the front right. Score! Taimur Solani with the steal. Real advantage.
2: Score! Off the floor. On the board. All career. All right. Welcome back, Saturday night to recap the last week of Ducks hockey eddie joined by steven today how's it going man uh, they gotta fire jim benning <laughs> it is incredible yeah we, we were talking really about jim benning before those, the podcast and it... but oh my god dude
1: they have to <laughs> he's got to go and it, the reason i was thinking about them actually is you know i was listening to 32 thoughts earlier and there was a lot of talk about how they're kind of in a tailspin organizationally right like Hughes isn't playing well. Pedersen's not playing well. The G- coach and the GM don't seem to have anybody's trust right now. And I thought of uh, the Toffoli trade, and I was thinking about I wonder how prominent uh, Solomon was in the Toffoli trade, which I think was pretty much a home run for the Kings. Yeah. I think they got a first or a second in Tyler Madden. Yeah, um, he hasn't made it yet, but, trail. I
2: mean, even even the pick itself, right? Like, Toffoli... In Montreal, now he had one good year, and he struggled this year. Like it, it...
1: oh, oh, weird. He shot thirty-five <laughs> percent last year, and, in a shortened season, and everybody's like, "Well, clearly Tyler Toffoli is a Rocket Richard candidate," and that's not true. Yeah, he's always it's a decent good. player in L.A. He's a, he is a very good middle six winger or a good top six winger. I ha, I don't think if he's on your first line, you have a problem. But I think you can always improve on him. But he's a good player. He plays strong, like at both ends and stuff like that. But like his shooting percentage was insane last year, and that was the thing about Montreal that made me nervous. And now i This is basically just pucks and brews now. Um, we'll do all this <laughs> whenever we. Do
2: that. I don't well, know. we got a long show today anyway, so we got we got yeah. plenty of stuff to hit on. And I, I think we're recording pucks and brews tomorrow, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. It all depends on on who's available, but. We have three games to look at for the Ducks this week. Uh, we had the Sunday game, I guess, technically from last week, the 5-1 win over Vancouver, the 3-2 overtime win, probably the most exciting game of the season against the Washington Capitals, and the end of the winning streak, the 2-1 loss to the Hurricanes on Thursday was our last game. All in all, a pretty good week. Uh, I, I mean, the loss is what it is. Like, the streak comes to an end. It's a bit disappointing, but I think when you look at it's against the Carolina Hurricanes. It was a hard-fought game. And it was a game the Ducks deserved to be within a, within a goal of, and ultimately it was a mistake from Shattenkirk that led to the goal for Seth Jarvis. And I think in those games, like all you want to see from the Ducks is to be to be close, right? To be in and around a chance, give themselves a chance to win. And I think they did that in that game. And then obviously the two wins they, they picked up and, you know, the two hardest games of the week were Washington and, and Carolina and you get a, and really fun OT win against the Caps with a Zegras, uh, overtime winner and a close game against the Hurricanes. And, you know, one of the best defense or the best defensive team in the league at a battle of, of Gibby versus Freddie. And statistically, you look at the, 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 analytics in that game, the ducks were right in it. And, you know, at the end of the day, the Hurricanes are, right now a better team and they took over in the third period suffocated the ducks and and ended up being able to sneak out a win but you got to give them full credit i think it was a fun week i think it was a good week for them and it shows some encouraging signs for the weeks ahead
1: yeah i mean I, we talked about it last weekend like going into this week how important this was going to be and how illuminating it was going to be and like washington's a good team and they beat a good team And I just think that game was so emotional on so many levels, right? Getsy gets his point. The club gets their 1,000th. You know, the streak continues. Trevor Zegres has the overtime winner. Like, the emotional letdown in that game, after that game, had to be phenomenal. And I think to see them come out of the gate as well as they did, against carolina and then they just kind of trailed off as the game went on and i think it's a mix of carolina being really good and just doing that to teams in general and two the ducks just having been on you know i mean they had the eight game win streak there's the whole troy terry thing right now gets lops all that stuff that i'm talking about like at a certain point it was just going to be too much and you know i think uh natural stat trick has a thing that like kind of tracks like coursey plus minus over the course of a game and if you see it for that Carolina game it starts in favor of Anaheim and then it kind of flattens out in the center and then at the end it goes down to Carolina and like if you watch that game you're like yeah and like just you know thinking about it it makes sense that that's the trajectory that last that loss would take yeah and I think it's encouraging you know I said it I'm curious what you think about this, because I I said it after the game, after the loss on Thursday, Mm -hmm. yeah, is I don't know what the Carolina loss means yet, I want to see what happens with Nashville on Monday, because if they come out strong in that game, and they're able to just be like, we lost to a good team, it happens, move forward, great. If they get the doors blown off of them, you know, by a bad team in Nashville, like, with three days rest, like then it's then it's maybe a question of like how much of this was an early hot streak. But we don't we don't know that yet, yeah. and that's my thing. And so like I I said I want to ask you, but like that's my like how do you feel about that? Like what are you taking away from the Carolina
2: game? Yeah, I, I'm I'm taking away like I on Ducks Morning Brew I talked about that game a little bit and I looked at the game flow chart that, that you it. were uh, that you were talking about and the fact that yeah it started out the Ducks. Had come out pretty strong. You know, the the early Carolina goal is just a great play by Martin Etchess. It's a great pass to the back door. Nothing you could really do on that one. The Ducks dominated arguably the entire first period after that. The second period was a bit of a feeling out period just to kind of see, you know, who's going to take the edge here. You know, we're going to step back and, and kind of sit in the pocket a bit. And then, yeah, the the Hurricanes came out in the third with some desperation, suffocated the Ducks offensively, and took advantage of the one opportunity that they got, which was the turnover by Shattenkirk. And the Ducks didn't lay down and die after that. They had some really good late chances. I think Ziegris had a great chance. Um, Henry got sprung on a breakaway, and Freddie made a great save. So it was a it was a game they were in, and they could have won. And Troy Terry made a comment after the game, like it for them being in there against a great team isn't good enough for them. And I think that shows you the mindset in the locker room right now. Like they knew they could have won that game, and they probably deserved to win that game. And and you know for them to come out of it being close to one of the best teams in the league just wasn't good enough for them. And I think this is a game like last year and two years ago you would have seen, against a team like this, the Ducks just get absolutely blown out in the shot attempts department, and it would have been John Gibson saving the day. But John Gibson had a great game, but the Ducks also played a great game in front of him, and I think that's the difference this year and why, again, I'm in in the same corner as you were. I don't really know what to think of the Carolina game yet and what it means going forward, but I think just taking it for face value, the fact that they stuck in that game the entire way through and didn't give up, I think is encouraging it, it it shows some good signs for the future, but yeah you got two two tough road games coming up you got to go to Nashville on Monday, and you've got to go to Colorado on Wednesday that's not easy to start the week that way, I know you got Ottawa and Toronto at home at the end of the week, but those are two tough places to play, Nashville's been an interesting team this year, and Colorado's finally starting to get things going, even without McKinnon in the lineup, it's going to be a tough one so uh, this is a, a week where we're going to really see what the Ducks are made of this year and if they are for real or if they're going to regress back to you know early season start. We saw them go 2-4-3 and three at the early beginning of the year.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think you're 100% right. I think it's going to be... You know, for as much as last week was a great week to kind of get an idea of how high this team's ceiling really was, um, I think this is a very good week to kind of get an idea of, like, how low this team's floor can be, right? Like, we've kind of talked about it, and it's one of those things that you say, and it sounds really stupid, but good teams beat bad teams. Great teams beat everybody, right? And, like, none of us think the Ducks are a great team right now, but they look like they might be a good team. And if that's the case, then this is the week where they're going to put some of it together to kind of show you, like, yeah, we can win some of these games at you know, we need to win. And, you know, we can, the one thing I guess that's encouraging is they've shown us the year has gone on that like they can win without everybody at the top um, scoring, you know? And, you know, we just got the news that Comtois is going to be out for six weeks, but, you know, give us, take us. We have heard from Eric Stevens that Ricard Raquel is in practice and should seem to be somebody that'll
2: be in the game on Monday. Yeah, so you you've got you've got a little bit of, of kind of roster turnover. Those would be interesting to see what they do. But like this week, you've really only got I would say one easy game if you want to call it that, or one game you should definitely win. That's against the Senators, right on Friday. I think that's the one game you should out of the the four. You say that is a a must win against that team. Nashville, like we said, is is pretty good this year they're 9-6-1 and they're having a, a better start to the year than I think most people would have thought and going into that barn at Bridgestone is never easy and it's historically never been easy for the Ducks over the last you know five to ten years to go in there and play against the Predators so it's going to be a tough one to do that and going into Colorado too um, you know like you said they are without McKinnon they are without a few other guys as well but you know, Kadri stepped up in his absence. Rontanen's been playing well. Makar's had a, a good two-game stretch here. They still have Landis Cox. So that's going to be a tough game. So you've got three really tough games add Toronto into that as well. That's probably the toughest one, even though it's at home, just in terms of, you know, the opposition and, and the record so far this year. Toronto's 12-5-1. And as always, over the last couple of years, been one of the best teams in the league. And it's, you know, Toronto has not been kind to Anaheim, whether you're in Toronto or Toronto's visiting Anaheim, it's always been a tough matchup for the Ducks to come out with a victory in that. So this is a, a def- early defining week for Anaheim to come out and kind of show who they are because we've seen the story like two two sides of the coin this year, right? We started the year the first nine games you go two four and three, the next nine games you go eight and one, like it's it's a completely different script in the in how the first half of the season has gone versus the second half of these 19 games so we'll see, Like this will be a, a really interesting week to see how they do and like you'd mentioned you know we have some roster changes coming into Monday here with McTavish going back to the OHL, uh, Benoît Olivier was sent back to the American Hockey League and Maxim Comtois his injury gets a little bit more clear he's out six weeks after surgery to remove a small bone from his right hand and then Ricard Raquel um, just a few, I think a few hours ago, Eric Stevens uh, put out an update on the Athletics real-time update um, feature and said that Raquel is skating. He is ready to come off the IR for Monday. He's playing with Zgris and Milano, which will make a lot of people happy to see um, Deloria come off that line. So there's going to be a, a bit of a new look. Like I, was that a problem? It was a problem for me. It was a problem for a lot of people.
1: We we Was that an issue? I hadn't heard anything about this I know, being right? an issue. So. It, it
2: definitely hasn't been talked about at all. Not not on this show several times at all, right? So, oh,
1: I missed a, I missed all of that. <laughs> I guess that's
2: weird. The, the, the only one constant we'll see is Henry gets And Terry are going to be together, I think. Other than that, obviously uh, a new partner for Silverberg and Lundestrom. Um, I'd have to check who that is. I think uh, Eric Stevenson put out the entire it, line. It's Dilo. Okay, so Dilo slots down um, with those two, and then it would be what Steel with Eric and Grant. Yeah, I think that's
1: right. And I got to be completely honest. To me, DLO with Lundy and Silverberg makes less sense than it does with him with Zeegers. It does, yeah. It uh, I can agree with that at least. Makes
2: less sense to me, and it's just. But at this point, you can't play anybody else, right? Like you could play Raquel there. That that's what I thought they were going to do. Honestly, is Raquel was just going to slot in with, uh, for McTavish and play with those two? But.
1: Yeah, because we've seen them do that, you know, over the last two years, where they'll put. Raquel and Silverberg together as kind of you know an offensive guy and a defensive guy, and let them kind of bulk be the wings and mm-hmm. they've played steel they played Steel there they played Lundstrom there they played Henrique there, like you know that that's been um a situation that we've seen them be comfortable doing uh and I believe with Lundstrom being a lefty, I would have thought it made even more sense, but you know it's it um it's gonna be good to get you know, that kind of skill and finishing and secondary playmaking up on that line with Milano and um Zegres. My God. I freaking blinked on the kid's name for a second. Uh, you know, it's gonna be good. I I, I think there's gonna be a lot of positives about it. It will be interesting to see kind of what happens and how everybody plays throughout the rest of the lineup. It is I think still a little bit shocking to me that Grant and Carrick can both play center, and they wouldn't put Mm Steele on wing and play that kind of fourth line of Grant, D'Lo, and Carrick and leave Steele on the wing with Lundstrom and Silverberg to really just kind of continue that kind of checking line. And, you know, that to me, I think, is a little bit interesting. I just don't know why they're so pot-committed to playing Carrick, uh
2: steal at center right now. It feels like he's kind of had his best games on the wing. Yeah. But... He had a decent week. Um, if you look at the underlying numbers, him and Carrick actually were one of the few ducks outside of the top line that were positive in uh, possession numbers and expected uh, expected goals for. So they were actually somehow decent. But uh, I get what you're saying. Like I... I, I
1: don't think he's been bad. Like I just, to me, you get the most out of his skill set if you play him on the wing with...
2: Two guys that have a higher floor, you know. I think you get the most out of this lineup right now the way it is with the guys we have available too. Playing Steele as a third line left winger with Lindström and Silverberg than Delorié. Like I think, yeah. I mean, even Carrick to some extent, I would rather play left wing with Lundstrom and Silverberg the way he's been playing. But it it does it does make more sense to say let's say Grant centers Delorié and Carrick, and you put Steele on the left wing with Lindström and Silverberg, and now you've got. You've optimized the the top nine of this team offensively. Uh, But, you know, I will give DeLore a bit of credit. As much as I've been on him not to be on the Zygris line because the numbers say that he's brought down Zygris' offense, I do still think he's put in a decent effort and he's made some good plays. I don't think he's played bad. I just think his play style naturally is going to bring down the offense of the line that he plays on, and I don't want that with Zygris. I'm I'm a bit more okay mm-hmm. with Linderstrom and Silverberg because it's I guess more of a shutdown line for the Ducks. I mean, they, they have yeah, the, the skill to contribute offensively, but I would imagine that line they'll want to get out there against either the opposing team's top line or second line and be a bit more of a, a defensive shutdown line to to give some rest to the other guys. So I, I'm fine with Delorier there, but I think it does optimize the lineup a bit more if you put Sam Steele on that line on left wing.
1: Yeah, I think so too, and and you know, I think it gives you, like, two guys who can take face-offs and different things like that. But I just think it it, it just makes sense to me to kind of have three guys that are pretty good at a bunch of things on one line instead of DeLaurier, who, you know, like the play that they lost on, right? Like, he threw a check to try to create separation from himself with the puck and the, the defender and he just kind of the guy just got out of the way and it missed set up the situation they get the thing in. shattenkirk loses it in front puck goes in game over like yeah everybody just kind of looked bad there but the thing about that play that stood out to me right away on replay was that delorier goes from the top of the face-off circle to the closest person to Nekus when he finishes that play he was the closest person there are like three or four other ducks at that point who could much easier get to him and like i get if like you know shattenkirk is kind of trying to watch rebounds and stuff in the front but there were like two or three guys at least right there that could have done it and delorier came all the way down full effort from the thing and like i get that it's not the sexiest thing in the world but like that kind of stuff matters like just being out there constantly going for it and just constantly having that high level of consistent effort. I just think it means a lot. And, you know, I I think that's why he gets as much ice time as he does because he's never takes a shift off, right? Like the results are obviously going to be mixed and there's going to be times where, because he's a physical kind of grinder, he's going to take penalties or things like that or whatever. But like, I just think that there is value in having guys you know because i think carrick is a very similar type i think lundestrom's a more skilled version of that in a lot of ways but like you know just guys with that constant level of effort and energy i just think it it, it has an impact mentally and emotionally for the rest of the
2: roster yeah, for so, sure. and i like i gotta clean that up a bit too like i in the sense that um and i know some of it's been joking from some people but a lot of people have been on um any of us who have kind of been critical of Delorie being on that line and that, oh, you know, we hate we hate him and we don't want him in the roster or whatever. Like, no, not necessarily. I, I think I love the work ethic that Nick Delorie has put in, and I think it's warranted him jumping up in the lineup because he doesn't ever take a shift off, and he always competes every time he's out there. Uh, and, and that can be – you know, that's not something that can be said for everybody on this roster right now. And so he's warranted for – that bump and playing with some some more skilled guys and moving up the lineup when those guys who are injured which is why i'm okay with them sticking with with Lindstrom and silverberg so mm-hmm. I, I do have an appreciation for what Delorié brings and i think you know every team kind of needs a guy like that and whether you know he's playing fourth line or playing third or second line or whatever depending on on the roster situation i think it's fine it is as, as long as it's for me not taking away from the offense that you could generate from your top six. And right now our top six is Henry Getzlife and Terry and Zigris and Milano and whoever plays with them. And if you're taking offense away from them, I think that can be an issue in games like the game for Carolina. And I think when you you saw I think it was halfway through the game, the Ducks were desperate a little bit to generate a little bit more offense. And guess who came off Ziegris and Milano's line? It was Nick Delorea and I think they put Sam Carrick right. there, which isn't I guess a major upgrade in terms of offensive skill but I think they noticed it at that point. In games where they're playing teams like that that are going to be a little bit more resolute defensively and you're not going to get as much space, you, you need an, You need another guy on that line because it, really it's going to be the line sure work offensively and, and, and skill-wise on that line is going to be done by Zegers and Milano and you sometimes need that third guy if you're going to try and break down a a team as solid as the hurricanes. We saw that halfway through that game. So occasionally in games against bigger opponents, if you feel the need to put Nick Deloitte with Trevor egress to protect him or send a message or whatever it is, I mentioned this before, like that, that's fine with me, but, um, yeah, I, I think it's a good sign for the ducks to, uh, to take him off and, and at least see what Raquel can do. Like, Raquel's coming back in the lineup, so it makes sense to put him with Zegers and Milano and see what you can do offensively with that line. Oh, I 100% agree with you there. Like, I think the moment Raquel
1: walks back into the lineup, given how good Milano and Zegers have looked together, I think it he has to get the right of first refusal. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, I, I think if it was a little different and it was like McTavish, right, where he's doing that kind of aggressive physical style of play front net front kind of stuff alongside Zegerson Milano. I think you can easier justify leaving that line alone. But I think when you do have DeLaurier and you've got two lefties and then you have a a high end right wing or like, you know what I mean? Like a, a good finishing skilled player, like he steps in with a right hand shot and all that kind of stuff. Like it just makes too much
2: sense. And like, I get it.
1: Um, And the chemistry
2: that Zegers and Raquel had to start the year, too, right? Like, that also, I think, plays into it a little bit.
1: Well, the other thing that's really interesting is it kind of gives you three guys who are just as comfortable shooting as passing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think we would all agree that Milano and Raquel are more shooting-inclined and Zegers is more classing inclined But, you know, Raquel's best season, he put up a 35-34 stat line. You know what I mean? Like, this is a guy who is just as effective making plays for other players um, as he is, as putting it in the back of the net for himself. And so I think it's going to be very interesting. And, and and there's a really good chance that this line does some really fun stuff and really gets buzzing because, you know, when Raquel has the kind of talent and support on his line, like he is a difference maker. He just, he can't, be the best player on the line and at this point i think he's kind of a 2a with milano i think milano's obviously just by by games played having a better season but that's not really raquel's fault you know what i mean so i i think it'll be really
2: interesting um i think he becomes a shooter on that line because right now um has technically been the shooter on That line, when you just look at, I know, at yeah, when you look at the volume of shots, like obviously Delore is not going to be the shooter on that line. Milano is averaging like just over a shot per game he 's got eighteen shots in thirteen games. Zegres has got thirty six shots in sixteen games, so averaging just over two shots per game. But when Raquel comes back in, Raquel before he got injured was averaging well over three shots per game, so like he he comes yeah. in to be the the shooter on that line. It provides a different dynamic I think you 're still going to see the chemistry between Zere and Milano. And then Raquel becomes another option on that line. So Zegers and Milano can do their thing. And then Raquel, like you said, becomes maybe that right-handed shot option or a secondary option coming late into the zone or sets up for a one-timer mm-hmm. trailing. Like there, It's going to be a lot of fun, or at least looks like it's going to be a lot of fun to watch these guys yeah. play together.
1: Yeah, and the two things I wanted to say, one is just funny because it made me laugh. Um, the best part of the Carolina game, 100%, was Nick Delorier. Crossing the blue line on his off wing, yelling "Kobe" and taking a slap <laughs> shot from like a foot inside the blue like line, it. it was perfect. It made me so happy. Um, but the other thing I wanted to mention about Raquel that I, I, I think should be appreciated here um, is he's he's a bit of a stockier boy than you kind of think mm-hmm. he is, and he can play a more physically engaged game. we've seen him in the corners and behind the net and definitely at the front of the net be willing to kind of throw his body around at, at certain moments. Um, it's not obviously the thing that he he does the most but he doesn't shy away from those things when he needs to. Um, so I, I do think there's a chance that he will be able to provide a less physical but more skilled kind of front net buzz. Uh, on that line, that you know maybe allows Milano and Zegris to stick to just being crazy people on the outside and then trying to cut to the center and make plays. Yeah. So I, I think it should be interesting. I'm I'm excited to see what that line can do, especially against Nashville. Yeah. Well, let's
2: let's talk about Zegras because if you look at top performers last week, Zagres led. Left... Oh, God, I said Zagres Oh man, you, you, you're getting to me now. Oh no. That one's never going away. Uh, tra- tra- uh, I love <laughs> Trevor Zegras led all Ducks forwards with five points, four goals and an assist in three games last week. The big, you know, all the points came in those two games: uh, two goals and an assist against Vancouver, two goals including the OT winner against the Washington Capitals. His breakout week of the season, uh, finally rewarded, I guess, for his play throughout the entire year so far, at least you know with the stats on paper. Uh, and he's back in the Calder race up there with uh, Raymond and Sider and a few other guys. Um, I guess a sign of more things to come from Trevor Zegers because we just talked about him now getting with Ricard Raquel and Sonny Milano. So another big week if it happens this week, I, I think we can start getting back into that discussion of Trevor Zegers being in the Calder race and and being a key member and for this team offensively. Yeah, I mean,
1: what we saw over the last, I don't know, five or six games, I guess, is kind of the catch a bottle breaking, right? Like because he had been doing all of this same stuff earlier in the season. And like we talked about it on here a couple times. Like, is it time to worry? And we were all pretty uniformly like it's not really an issue yet. Yeah. Like but he's getting chances. It's really just about bounces here and breaks there. So I don't know that is anything to worry about. And then as we saw last week, they start going in and then his confidence goes back up a little bit i don't think he ever lacks for it but i do think it just means something different to see those goals go in whether you're making them whether you're scoring them or play uh, making the pass just to see the goals start to go in is huge and and so now we're gonna see him you know kind of have a little bit more of that momentum and we'll see what happens and you know but i i expect him to kind of be around the top six in rookie scoring this year like i think that's a fair expectation for him as a player now how that translates into term of wins how that translates into his place in the team scoring race and things like that like i'm less concerned about that um because i just think that's going to come but like amongst his peers i expect him to finish in that top handful of guys Um, I don't think Lucas Raymond is going to be a point game player every game for the rest of the season. Um, You know, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. But I think it's pretty clear at this point that he seems to be exactly what everybody thought he was. And that's the guy. Except
2: for one person who we won't talk about. Yeah, we won't talk about (laughs) that. But uh, yeah, Lucas Raymond is the guy that he has to catch right now. Uh, Zegers has 10 points. Mercer with New Jersey has 12. Cider has 13. Raymond has 18. So the big guy that gets... cider just got hurt, uh, right? I think so. I think he did get hurt. So he's out yeah, for a little bit. A that one, though, is interesting because, again, he's a defenseman, so the 13 points is a little bit more impressive, I guess, to the voters than, you know, Mercer's oh, 12 or, or Zegers is 10. But, you know, the, the big guys I think he's chasing would definitely be Cider and Raymond, and that's not a slight against Mercer. Mercer's been great. I just don't know... Mercer has been such a surprise. Like I just don't know if he'll be able to keep that up for the entire year. But he's right in the mix, and that's where I expect him to be at the end of the year. Uh, was I guess not runaway favorite, but the the better's favorite at the beginning of the year. So he is getting right back to that, and uh, again a, another big week potentially for him. And it's it's been indicative of his play all season. Like we mentioned this, I think it was maybe the yeah it would have been the last podcast because he he had broke out this week. We said okay, it's a matter of time before Trevor Siegris gets going because he's been playing mm-hmm. well. And the finish just hasn't been there or, or you know, he's passed it to a teammate and, and it's been the goal attenders make a good save, whatever you wanna say. You could see that he was due. And that came that came true this week. And I think that will continue to come true for the rest of the year here because not that he needs more confidence, but once the points start coming, like naturally there's going to be a bit more confidence there. I don't know if you can add more confidence to Zegers, uh that there already right. is. But like we saw with Troy Terry, right, at the beginning of the year, like that's just continued throughout the start of the season. The points came, and now he's on a 16-game 16, 16 point streak, and he just seems to never – he's just going to continue this for the rest of the year, it seems like. Right now just the confidence is so high. So you, you can only imagine now if Trevor Zegers can get going and that top line can stay – consistent as they have for the first 18 games of the season that's a pretty encouraging sight for the ducks moving forward and, and their hopes of becoming potentially a playoff team which is something i don't think i would have thought i would be saying at this point yeah yeah i mean it's still early like it it, it is it, it's
1: such a it's so well it's not even that like uh, like to brett's point in the discord right he keeps me like cause he keeps egging me and waiting for me to like admit that this is like for real for real Because, like, I keep saying, like, the wheels are going to fall off this wagon, like, you know, and to his credit, like, it's
2: been it's been almost a quarter of the season or it has been.
1: Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, it's hard at this point to say that this isn't what they are to some degree. Right. But the question that I kind of still have is about the finishing, because I don't think like it feels to me like the finishing is fundamentally what has changed. And, like, some of that is Troy Terry shooting 75%. Um, Some of that is the power play being just completely revamped and creating opportunities for guys to score goals. And then some of that is a little bit of luck. Like, all of a sudden, you know, Adam Henrique is, like, a top six winger all of a sudden. Like, he's not that guy. You know what I mean? And so, like, you you know, it's just... I mean, I, I guess fundamentally, like, and I'll, I'll ask you how you feel about it, but like, it seems to me that the question is, can they regress farther downward than
2: the rest of the division can upward? Yeah, I I think right? that's where because, it gets interesting because it's not like this is a great division. Like the, I think like the in in well, it's a great division right now because three teams that are supposed to be god awful. Yeah. Well, winning. the Sharks and, and, and Kings have started part. to fall back a little bit closer to earth. I think the ducks are the ones Good. that have kind of stayed a little bit above the line here. But like my, my thing is, and, and I think why it's so hard to believe or get like, get that feeling deep down that this is for real is because the expectations going into the season where it's the same roster as last year, this is the team that finished dead last in power play. And I think second last in goals per game last year. So mm-hmm. there wasn't a lot of expectations. So for me, it reminds me of, I think it was two seasons ago, the Sabres started with 20 wins, nine losses, and one overtime loss. They made it 30 games in the season and had won 20. And everybody's like, well, yep, like okay, the Sabres are for real. And they missed the playoffs by a mile by the end of the year. <laughs> and, <laughs> yep. and, yeah. And the encouraging signs, at least for this Ducks teams, are the underlying numbers support that they are a good team, or at least they have been a good team to start the year. And they've beat some good teams, or they've hung around – with some good so teams let's... as well. And guys like Troy Terry, yes, the shooting percentage is high, but the numbers all say that he is playing well and he deserves to be putting up the numbers. It's not luck. And the same with the defense pairings. like They're all doing better, and it doesn't seem lucky. So I can understand where Brett's coming from. Like the, the amount of games we've played, it's not a small sample size across an entire season. It's almost a quarter of the year. So this team is good. But we've seen teams in the past that were supposed to be bad, start really good for the first third of the season. And then as Mm -hmm. the year gets on and teams start to get out of their slumps, you know, not in the division, but Colorado eventually is going to turn it around. Uh, Vegas at some point when their injuries start, you know, they get Eichel back later on, they get Pacioretty back. They're going to turn. They already have started to turn around. I think they're seven and three in their last 10 games. So they're creeping back up. They're right on the heels of the ducks right now. Calgary looks like a pretty good team, and Edmonton is is going to probably win the division this year unless Vegas can catch back up to them. So it, it is competing with those three teams at this point. Like, I don't, Seattle's out of it. Um, Vancouver, no. And then the two other California teams have already kind of started to regress. So are they going to be better than Edmonton, Vegas, and Calgary? I think is the question. And the way they've played, they'll be in the mix. But part of me just can't. I just can't get on board, and it's due strictly due to the expectations heading into the season. I just can't get over that right now. So here, let's
1: let's just get weird and meta for a second. I guess like here's a question: is how much of this is how much of this conversation is inherently fucked, for lack of a better way to say it, because it's good team bad team dynamic instead of this team is playing very well. Like, I think there is a huge difference between a team that is playing well and a team that is good. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. And, and I think what you're seeing right now, right, is something that we fucking talked about a thousand times, which is the top of the lineup gets stronger, which moves everybody down, and they allow guys to succeed in roles that are more fitting their talent level or their age or you know, combination of both. The Ducks, I believe, came into the season as the youngest team in the league. Now, McTavish gets sent back down. Bo Grew is down. Uh, Comtois hurt. Comtois hurt, right? So the lineup does get a little bit older that way. But fundamentally, the guys who are making a difference on this team are young. It's Drysdale. It's uh, Zegris, It's Milano. Terry. And it's Terry. Right. And like Lundestrom is playing well, but I I think what we've seen from him is that he has settled into a middle six defensive center. Right. Like, I think he's going to be more productive offensively as he goes on. I think as the team gets deeper offensively, it'll be easier for him. Right. If he's able to be effective on a second power play unit, if he's able to be on a third line with, say, Tracy or Pastuyov or, you you know what I mean? Somebody like that. Like, I I think we're going to see that the potential is there to be better, but he clearly isn't the guy that's going to drive the offense for the team. The thing about young guys is it just goes up and down, and like we've heard Tortorella say this every time they ask him about the Ducks. He goes, I love Milano. He's incredibly skilled. He's a great kid. The question is about consistency. Well, he's been consistent as shit so Mm -hmm. far, and I think a big part of that is that he's playing with Zegers, who has played really well. What happens if one or both of them hit a rough patch, right? What happens in February when they're 6 games in a row on the road and they're miserable and all this crap, right? That'll be the question. And so I think the reason that I'm hesitant isn't that I don't think the team is playing really well. It's that that isn't the same thing as inherently being a good team.
2: Yep. Yeah. Consistency makes a, a the difference between a team playing well and a good team. And Right now, like I had mentioned this earlier in the show, the the ducks are a story of two halves right now. They started the season two, four, and three, and then they won eight games in a row. right? so it it it's which team is it? Is it the team that was two, four and three, or is it the team that's eight and one, or is it in the middle? or like what what are they yet? I think now that the lose, the winning streak is over, we have four games this week. We already mentioned how this is a defining week. I think this week next week are really gonna give us an idea of what the ducks are because we've seen two different teams really this year so far and mm-hmm. now we'll get an idea I think they are right in the middle I honestly do obviously they're not an 8-1 team every nine games they're not going to go 8-1 and one. but I also don't think they're going to be you know 2-4-3 and three. I think they're going to be a kind of just above 500 team which is better than they were last year which is honestly if you had told me that coming into the season I'd be fine with that if the Ducks were going to be a 500 team throughout the year a little bit better than 500 I would be okay with that I, I think that is improvement um you know i don't know how that's going to look over the rest of the year but when you have guys like Segris playing well you have Trey Terry just on a roll and looking like that's never going to end like it 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 does bode well for the rest of the year i, I do want to talk about Trey Terry cuz i don't want him to get lost in this but Terry had three points over the three games for the Ducks one in each game of course cuz he's on a 16 game point shoot. we got the lone goal against the hurricanes we i think it was on the post game show uh, we talked about, would he get to Perry's 19-game point streak? So he'd have to get a point against Nashville, Colorado, and Ottawa and could break it on Sunday against Toronto. Getting fairly close at this point, and it doesn't really look like he's going to slow down because when the Ducks need a goal and they're in a tight game against a team like Carolina, he's right there, and he's he's there for the goal. He, he is the guy that's going to get them going <laughs> offensively if they're playing a, a tight, close game. And man, like, it well, it is such an unbelievable run that obviously is getting talked about a lot by us and by national media as well, but it still just feels unreal. Like, he's still fourth in the league in scoring. Like, it, it's, it's crazy that he's been able to put this type of play together.
1: Well, the other thing I think that gives him a huge boost as far as having the opportunities is how good he's been defensively, yep. right? Like, there's no reason not to play him at the end of a game, whether you're down a goal or up a goal. Like he's just good, and he's good at both ends, and he he he's gonna be a guy that they can lean on late in games, regardless of the scoreline, right? Like I, I understand that there's a the whole Vancouver thing with 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 Zegres and all that stuff. Like I, I I get that, but like I think. Zegers will develop into that. I think his defensive numbers have been fine. Like, I think he's going to get better as well. Um, And he'll be out there. But for right now, like Troy Terry is playing with Ryan Getzloff, who is probably the best defensive forward on the team right now. And because he's been rejuvenated, like playing with Troy Terry and being around all these young guys from kind of what we're hearing with uh, some of the stuff that like, I think Zegers has said about his thousandth game and all that kind of stuff. Like, that's more than anything is what's going to be beneficial to Troy Terry as far as trying to keep this streak alive is he's playing with the captain and they are probably the best forward pair that you can play defensively right now like there's no reason not to so he is going to get probably 16 17 minutes at a regular basis to really try to keep keep that thing alive and we talked about it, I think on the post game show that like the thing that I'm very curious to see is whenever it stops, because he's not going to, you know, put up 80 games in a row or whatever the hell is, is it five games between, or is it one game between like, how, how long is that gap? And like, it's going to be interesting to see, but he's fucking been incredible, man. Like, I mean, you know, we've talked about him every show for a reason. He's just been great. He's reasonably been the Ducks MVP like I still always think I would almost always lean Gibby just out of reflex at this yeah. point um but like it, it, there's nobody other than those two who have a case like and and that's with understanding that Zegers and Getzloff have been fantastic I I just think if you're looking at it those are the two guys that have been the most important to this team's run of success right now
2: yeah Yeah, Um, it's not, like you said, it's not a slight to Getzlaff and Zegers. It's just how good Troy Terry's been. Like, there's no question he's the Ducks' best forward. And then when it comes to who's been their most influential player this year to their success, it it, it really is Terry and Gibson. Like, those are the the only two I can really argue. And like you said, Getzlaff's been great and Zegers has been great and other players have been really, really good that have contributed to the success. But there's two guys at the top of that list, and it's those two.
1: Yeah, I, so the other thing was, like, you were talking about, like, being in between, right? Not They're not a 2-4-3 and three team, but they're not an 8-1 team. And so, like, I brought up the schedule because I was curious. One of four regulation losses, 2-1 to Minnesota. Uh, then they lose 6-5 uh, to Edmonton in regulation. Then they get blown out, 5-1 to Winnipeg. Then they lose 4-3 in overtime to Minnesota. 4-3 loss in regulation to the Jets, uh, 4-3 loss in overtime to the Sabres, and a 5-4 shootout loss to the Knights, and then starts the eight-game streak. I think that 2-4-3, and three, looking at this, the schedule, looking at the record... And what those gate, like what the four and the three are. I think that is very indicative of what this team is. And I think that is a compliment. I really mean that because uh, I think we talked about it a little when we talked about like season preview, but like, Pierre Dorian got a whole bunch of shit for being like the rebuild is over. Now it's about taking steps forward. And like, I get why that sounds stupid looking at the team and all that kind of stuff, but i i I thought that what he was saying fundamentally was very fair and really, an encouraging thing if you're on that team, which is like, no, these guys are good enough. Now it's about them getting the experience and the reps in to be in more of these games as the season goes on and to win some of the coin flip games that we weren't winning last year and to turn some of the blowouts last year into those coin flips. That's what this Anaheim did even early on. And like, I get that they were getting outplayed. You know what I mean? Like I don't have any illusions about, it being super tight all of those games but what you are seeing is that the goals were there to a degree and they were playing against good teams by and large and they were staying in those games and so you know i think two four and three is about right you know i think obviously if it was like let me do math real quick in my head like four two and three right or four four and one you might feel a little bit better and it could have been too
2: like you said they're all close games
1: yeah Yeah, there's a lot of those games that were really close. I mean, it was so close to that Minnesota game was eight seconds away from being an overtime Mm -hmm. loss, win, whatever, right? Because once you get to three on three, it's a whole other thing. And then how much does that win change the rest of those nine games? Like, it's just I think even with that record and even with this eight and one record, that's kind of exactly what they are, which is this team that can go on streaks where they're just going to lose a couple games because they're just not there yet. But they've got enough talent where they can put a run together, and you know I I've been pretty adamant that I think this is a bottom five team in the league. But I mean, look at this point, eighteen games in, it's hard not to say they're not closer to ten to fifteen uh, as far as like lottery results than they are to mm-hmm. five. Like you know, what yeah, I mean? they feel like if they There's do they miss the playoffs, it will teams. be
2: it will be close. It won't be near the bottom of the division or bottom of the conference at this point. Um, which I mean, I don't know i I never like being the team that just misses out, but i you know i have always said I'd rather be near the bottom and have a better chance at the top overall pick than just miss out. but I think at least not like for where the ducks are now, where they've been the last couple of seasons, like just missing out is such a huge step forward progress wise yeah, it really where is. like it sucks to just miss out and you 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 still don't make the playoffs and your pick isn't that great, but it like it just kind of feels okay for that to happen this year because how bleak it's been over the last couple of years like you've seen you know if it gets to that point like obviously we'll have seen tory terry take a huge step forward zegras get better dry still get better we might see perot later on in the year and and potentially some trades that bring new guys in and, and push some guys out so like you'll see like some progress and change there where it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world for them to to miss out but it would still be. A, yeah, I mean, it would still hurt a little bit, right? Because we all went into the season saying, "All right, it's Shane Wright's season," and now it's. it's it playoffs? <laughs> like it's. A, it's pretty <laughs> crazy how quickly that that shifted. Well,
1: well, yeah, like Mike Blake McCurdy has the he like I, I he refers to it as like the sadness meter, and I've worn the shirt for a couple of you know yeah. shows and stuff, and like it's about teams that are. Have the highest percentage of not winning the lottery and not winning the cup, and like. It sucks to be in that spot, right, where you're in that ugly middle, and we talk all the time about don't want to be stuck in the middle where you're not quite bad enough to really tear it down, but you're not really good enough to go for it, and like you're just in this weird holding pattern. But if you're looking at this team from the outside, what you're seeing is a couple of rejuvenated vets and a couple of kids who might be ahead of schedule. That's not the worst way to miss. And as we saw with the Rangers a couple years ago, and then I think the Flyers, Flyers stars a couple as years well where that like there have been some big jumps up. You know, <laughs> if Anaheim's first, like, like again, this is just all so fucking hypothetical and fantastical. But I think one of the things that came into this year, especially seeing Shane Wright, is, you know what? This is going to be a rebuilding year. We're going to play the kids. It's going to be bad, and we're going to get through it. And at the end of it, we've got a chance to get the first overall pick in franchise history and use it on a player like Shane Wright, who has a chance to be a very, very special player. Like, yeah, I get why it sucks if that's not necessarily what you think. But if it's, damn, these kids were better than they thought. They missed the playoffs and they jumped from 13 to 1 or 13 to 2nd. Like, yeah I'll I'll take that every day like I and obviously that is entirely outcome dependent but I think even if you don't get that kind of lottery ball bounce the thing that you're seeing is this isn't a team that did stupid things to get up early right they didn't sell or they, they didn't sell themselves short like in the long term to make a quick push up right they didn't hole on the emergency break or any of that shit. Like I don't know. I'm fine. Well, yeah, like we we, didn't, we didn't
2: dive into free point. agency and, and pay a lot of money for anybody exactly. to try and compete this year. We went in with the same roster and it just turned out a lot of guys took some steps forward. Vets came back and played a lot better than they did last year. And oh hey, we're like actually a yeah. decent team Thank this you. year. And if that results in like a middle-of-the-pack pick and we don't win the lottery, fine. But I also think the Ducks are going to find a way to grab at least one, if not two, extra first-round picks at the deadline this year with guys like Raquel and Manson, potentially Lindholm as well, which could set you up with a chance to move up in the draft, or at least with just a few swings at, at, the, at the plate for a, a decent player in, in kind of the middle 10 to 20 range in the draft with a few picks there and then one late first, and then you just add to the pool at that point, which... Is fine with me because I think when you look at where this team projects to be in, in the next couple of years, this is probably like the last draft where you'll be adding some of these guys in the tail end of being ready to compete. Like Pastuyov is a couple of years out. Perot is probably, if not next year, the year after that, out from, from being.
1: Are we a... 100% sure Pastuyov's a couple of years out? I, I would. Are we 100% sure he's not on this team next it year? He could be. Dude?
2: Like, the, uh, he's at least a couple like... years out, like or next year potentially. Oh, but, like, again, they'll, they'll come into the same. I think oh wait maybe not. I I don't know Pistorio situation is interesting. I I'm, I'm going to have to double check this because I don't I think he can actually play for San Diego next year because he was a he assigned a contract and he was a college player at one point and he just like Max mm-hmm. Jones type situation where he went down to junior uh, later on so I, I think he can actually play for San Diego next year so we might see him sooner rather than later but like my point is like this is the last draft where like you're getting some guys in terms of when you think they'll be in the NHL and competing at a high level where they'll be in there with the with you know Zegers and, and still kind of in their, their 23, 24, 25 years and Perot as well in that mix and uh, Drysdale and uh, and Gibby kind of in his prime of you know late twenties early thirties. So you've you've got a chance here to add some picks with the pieces you have going out the door, where it, it looks like and, and McTavish too. We even talked about him again. Like he back down to the OHL and and he'll be back next year, likely to be here on a permanent basis, right? Potentially playing center too. So you've got a good a, a good window here to to add to that pool, and you don't necessarily need to be bad to hit Shane, right? Like, of course, we would love to add him in here, but it it comes at the sacrifice of progress. So it's not like it's not like it's the worst thing in the world to sacrifice that chance, right? And if you just miss out, you like you said, you could swing for the fences potentially in the lottery and pull a Rangers and move up to one and get right, or two and get a guy like Kemmel or somebody else, right? So you do have a chance to still get a really high-profile piece while also just having some fun along the way instead of just exactly. having it like the last couple seasons where it's been... Bleak coming into again, like this. It's been such a a fun feeling this year because it's been a while where we've gone into games with like excitement. Like I've been like, oh man, I can't wait till the next D- Ducks game. And it feels bad. Like I don't want to say that like, this is my favorite team. I love to watch them every night, but there's been this just new kind of level of excitement about waiting for games, especially during this win streak. Where like, yeah, I can't wait for Thursday's game. Like I just, it, it's gonna be fun. Like it's it's fun to watch these guys play right now. Whereas the last couple seasons have been like, all right, we're playing. We're playing in Colorado on Tuesday. Like, we'd go into podcasts and be like, all right, we got these teams coming up. Are they going to get one win? <laughs> so it's a, bit, it's a bit more fun watching that this year.
0: There's no I in team, but there is one in Indeed. And that's the hiring platform that you need to build yours. When you're hiring, you need Indeed.
1: yeah i mean and and and, i mean the last time i said it it was a joke but now it seems like it might be for real like it looks like one like this draft actually is pretty deep in the first round but two though like a player like brad lambert might really be available at 16 17 18 and like you know that is seems to be some of the talk about him is that he's had such a bad year that he's fallen out of i let me say this it felt to me like he was almost a guaranteed top five yep. pick. It feels to me like he's having a very Atu Rody kind of season uh, as far as kind of falling out of favor early on and really not having it kind of break his way. Um, you know, there, there's going to be some fun play. And everybody does weird shit. And the best thing for Anaheim is it looks like Detroit might be good, so they might yeah. be... Behind Anaheim for once, and not be able to screw us over with their pick.
2: Well, and and uh, DB Lowry mentioned yeah. the chat. look what the Coyotes are going through right now at, to get a chance at drafting this kid. Like they have completely gutted their team uh, and and moved out really everything. To, to... it's like the third time yeah, they've done this. exactly. Too. Like it, it could be that right, and and that's why I think like we mm-hmm. got to sit back and say okay. You know what the expectations going in into the season were like—it's lose for Shane Wright, but the Ducks have been better, and that's okay. Like that's fine. Like not getting Shane Wright doesn't mean this team's never going to be good. They—they've already got a lot of good young pieces in the mix. Like a one-two punch of Zegras and McTavish going forward is fine with me. Like if it—if you—if you you don't get Shane Wright, it's not the end of the world. The Ducks are still going to get a really good player, potentially multiple guys in the first round this year to add to what is already, in my opinion, a top five prospect pool in the league verging on being one of the best when you look at the progress Pistuiar has made this year and what Perot's doing in San Diego like you've got some really high profile pieces coming in a lot of good depth throughout the season to fill this out and you'll still get some, some really good talents uh, heading into this draft too uh, I, I'm going to forewarn everybody a little bit this is going to be a long one like we still have we still have a fair about five topics to get to um, by the end of this so, so buckle in it's going to be a little bit of a long one uh, but I do want to get to McTavish because that's the big news that came out today. Real quick, I want okay, to make this ahead. joke
1: before I forget.
2: When we do an update on the goal's
1: best player right now, is that a progress report? Thank you very much, everybody. Yeah. I'll be here until Eddie kicks me off this stupid fucking podcast. I love you all. Love uh, so, okay, but to your point, Mason McTavish, uh, I actually i am going to run this one because I want to not have you have to ask me a question and wait for me to pretend I know what I'm talking right. about before you can say things. So Mason McTavish, uh, we found out today, I believe this morning, that he was sent back down to uh, Pittsburgh to play for the Pirates.
2: Oh, my God.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. It made me laugh. It was too easy. Um, But he's going to go down. I believe you were the one who made the point about it's not a very good team and there's a chance that he might get kind of Mm -hmm. moved uh, a little closer to the deadline. And you mentioned Guelph with Pastyov as far as a place that he could maybe go or London, which I think you only want because then you could go see him. Um, but he looked good. He looked fine. He looked like he kind of understood who he was and how he had to play at this point in his career to be in the NHL. What do you think that this says about them sending him back, especially with Bo being sent back down and Comtois being out for six weeks.
2: Yeah, I I was a little surprised because of the injuries. Now, I also didn't think Raquel was going to be ready to go for Monday. Um, the last comments we had heard is that Aiken said he's going to they're going to take baby steps with Ricard Raquel. This was three days ago, and then all of a sudden, no, no, he's ready to go. He's good for Monday. So that was a bit surprising. But big baby. Steps. I I thought he had played well enough to stay. But I'm also not surprised they sent him back down because I, he's going to go back down and dominant, which I'm, I'm fine with him going down there and being one of the best players in the league. I don't know how much he's going to gain necessarily development wise, just going down there and torching that league. But I think we talked about what happens with this roster when Comtois and Raquel come back. Right, And at some point this season, five, six weeks from now, Comtois was going to come back into the roster. Where does that leave Mason McTavish if this team is fully healthy at that point? And I think that's what Jeff Solomon and Dallas Aikens and the rest of the Ducks staff looked at and said, you know what, like, are we going to play this kid on the fourth line or who's going to play on the fourth line at this point? Because if Henry gets LaFontaria healthy, they're playing together. Raquel Milano and Zegers look like they're playing together and then come to when he's back come to all Lindstrom Silverberg so who comes out for to make way for McTavish there really no one like you can't really say okay we're gonna pull you're not right. pulling the vets out and the guys who are making a ton of money Milano potentially but if he's still going well with Zegers at that point which is what you hope like you're not pulling him out of the roster for for Mason McTavish so I think at that point you say, you know he could stick around and be a valuable player for us now, and it would be good for his development to stick around now, but then we don't we lose the chance to send him down later and still have that uh, ELC slide to next year. Like there's no point in keeping him for 10 to 15 games and and then sending him back down to the OHL later. You might as well make that decision now and and that's where I understand why the ducks did it and they wanted me to play center. Right, like We saw this with Zegras last year, played on the wing, went down because he could go down to San Diego to then go back again and play center with San Diego and come back and play center with the Ducks. The Ducks, I think, would rather him play a full year in the OHL at center than play 50, 60 games in the NHL at the wing. I I just think right now they think that's best for his development, and I find it hard to disagree with that, honestly. As much as I think the OHL is going to be really easy for him, especially how comfortable he looked at the NHL level and when he does get traded to a better team. But I think a year of him playing at center, even at that league will benefit him in the long run when the Ducks try and push him to center at the NHL level, because it would, I think it'd be really hard for him to rebound after a full year on the wing with no opportunity for him to really play center for the Ducks this year to then go, okay, we're going to play you at center next year. You all of a sudden you're going to shift to center to playing 60 games at the NHL level on the wing. I think that would be tough All for him. Right. So I, I think it's the right move at the end of the day. It sucks personally because I thought he was playing really well, and I think with Comto Jones out, he really provides something that I'll, that the Ducks are missing in terms of just a, a effective net front presence with some skill, and they won't mm-hmm. have that until Maxim Comto comes back. But McTavish will go back to Peterborough for a bit. He'll probably stay with Peterborough until the World Junior Championships Will so go play for Canada. He'll do really well at that tournament and then likely be traded uh, before he even comes back to Peterborough and whether it's London because they're in desperate need of a first-line center and one of the best teams in the OHL or to Guelph, which is a pipe dream, which is something we really hope because <laughs> it would be fun to see him play with uh, with Sasha Pastyov, But... It it, it will be a a good season for McTavish. It'll be a lot of fun to watch him down there. It'll be even more fun when he gets traded to a better team, and we probably see those point totals tick up. Um, And we'll see him back next year, I think he'll be better for it. Yeah, I I, I think for me that there are two thoughts that kind of immediately pop
1: into my head, and and one of them actually clicked a lot more when you were talking right now, which is that I, I honestly even more so than going down and playing center which is i i I think it's a very very valid point i think it's it, it even if that alone was the reason which is we've seen that he can play at this level now we want him to go back down take one more year play center do that i think more than anything that best on best tournament with that world juniors and with him to be a potential real difference maker in that tournament and to see him play against his peers in a best on best tournament i that to me might almost be the most, like that to me on its own is enough of a reason that I think sending him down makes sense. Um, I I think the opportunity there, as far as getting him out in a best-on-best tournament, international tournament, playing with some of these guys, as well as, you know, moving into a team and being a major player on a competitive OHL team, uh, I I think that makes a ton of sense. The other thing, though, that I wonder about is what does this mean about Henrique on this team because does this mean Henrique's here to stay does it mean they're not looking to move him you know I, i'm just very curious how this relates to Adam Henrique because right now Adam Henrique on paper is like the third or fourth best duck forward if not yeah. higher um i guess yeah i guess you would say he's probably fourth behind the two kids in Getze. but like he's played really well i i think he's p- playing very well as a result of playing with two players that are better than him uh and having a great season but it doesn't matter like he's still playing mm-hmm. well and he's a very effective two-way forward um who can play center obviously can play the wing like do you think this makes it less likely that they try to trade him or do you think it's entirely unrelated to Henrique's kind of prospects with this team because the AHL is there.
2: I I think losing McTavish, and and he was clearly, in in my opinion, a a player who could stick around and make an impact at the NHL level and be an average NHL player for this year, it makes it difficult to trade anybody beyond Ricard Raquel. I I think you kind of have to look at trading Ricard Raquel because he's an unrestricted free agent and, and the, you know, there's going to be a lot of interest in him because of his contract um as one of the, the real valuable key rental players at the deadline but if you move Raquel it's hard to then say okay we're also going to move Henrik even if you're getting some interest in him because who else is going to play like let's just say for example Raquel gets moved and you could Perro still playing well you can make the argument okay Perot comes up and slots in for Raquel and you really don't Potentially lose anything from your roster, right? You could still, if their ducks are a competitive team in the mix for the playoffs at that point, you could trade Raquel, get the assets for him, and bring up bring up Perot and still be a competitive team in the sense that you can really, you're not losing necessarily the the offense that you're getting from Ricardo Raquel, but it makes it hard to then go out and move a guy like Adam Henrique at the same time because the the options for the Ducks in San Diego and, and, and bringing guys up, they're not great beyond Perot right now. Um, you could bring up Vinny Latari and that's an option. But again, if you're trading Henrique to bring up Latari, you're losing something there in terms of the the quality throughout your lineup. The same goes for Braden Tracy, who I thought had a good year in San Diego, but it's not a necessarily like-for-like drop. So you, if you trade Raquel and someone else, and that someone else is more than likely would be Adam Henrique, the way he's been playing. It makes it difficult to still be a competitive team if that's what they're trying to do at this point. So I I, I think it's tough to, to really make that switch. I mean, like we said, Comtois is going to come back at some point. He'll be back in six weeks from now, um, or maybe five weeks if we're lucky. And that gives you a little bit more depth. But b- beyond moving out key pieces... Uh, from the blue line, when we look at Manson and Lindholm, who are unrestricted free agents, I think there's guys down there that you can potentially replace them with. You're not going to get the same level of play, but when we look at, you know, Maher and Benoit have been good. I think both of them could play if we move out, you know, I have this Lindholm. <laughs> Obviously, there's a huge, huge drop-off there. Uh, but if you have um, Josh Manson as well, who gets moved out, uh, you know, maybe... Axel Anderson or Brandon Gooley come up. So there there's some options there. But I, I just think it's really hard. Like, it, it was a really long, rambling way of saying it's really hard for the Ducks to move out more than one impactful player. Um, because, you know, Raquel, you can swap with Perot And, and then when you move Henrique out, you're, you're you're making a net loss at that point if you don't bring in any other young players by bringing up a Letary or a Tracy. And if you want to still compete, it makes it really hard to do that.
1: Yeah, I, I think the hope, right,
2: is in any trade that you send one of those types
1: of guys out, you bring back a roster player. Um, and the goal shouldn't be to obviously bring back someone who can have a similar value because then you're making a hockey deal, which is kind of defeating the purpose of moving on from these types of veterans. Um, but being able to bring back someone who can plug a hole for a little bit, kind of, I mean – this is a really low-grade version of it, but I, I thought one of the best parts of the Holzer to uh, Nashville trade was they got back Matter when Matter when just like played some games for Anaheim at the end of the season and it was fine. You know, he he wasn't good, he wasn't you know the worst. He was just a dude who played some games and that was that. Um, so you know, I I, I guess yeah, I'm just curious because it feels like if there was ever going to be a time to move Adam Henrique with the understanding that that contract is a little difficult to move on from right now, early enough in the season where some teams can talk themselves into getting out of a hole perfectly lines up with him um, playing some of the best hockey we've seen him play in a long time. So it's
2: just an interesting kind of, Uh, Dynamic to me as far as where he's at. I I think the trade deadline could be very interesting because I think, depending on where the Ducks are standings-wise, they could actually be buyers and sellers at the deadline in the sense that they are selling off their unrestricted free agents and Raquel Manson and potentially Lynn Tolman, maybe even Adam Henrique if they get a good enough offer. But then they could be buyers looking at yeah, you know some of the younger assets that teams are ready to move on from. Like guys we've seen in the past, like the Daniel Sprongs and the Josh Hosangs, and those types of players that are available at the deadline. Not not the oh. rentals, right? But the guy, the younger players that, you know, the, it, Vertanen, right? Last a couple of seasons ago, with the Ducks, were linked with Vertanen, Those types of players, where they're available, they don't really make the team better than moving other, you know, replacing a Raquel or a Henrik, but. They become buyers in that sense to replace some of the outgoing guys, and, and they still are smart buys, and they don't cost you first-round picks or whatever, you know, a third- or a fourth-round pick or a like-for-like swap with, with some of the younger players they have in San Diego. That, that, they could be in an, an interesting scenario there where they become a bit of both, and they, they become sellers out of nature because they kind of have to get assets for some of these guys that they probably won't want to give contracts to and then become buyers if the right opportunity presents itself to still be a competitive team this year and compete potentially for a playoff spot at without sacrificing your assets at the same time. So it'll be a really interesting deadline, and a lot of it depends on where the Ducks are standings-wise because if they fall off, then they'll just be pure sellers. But they might be in a situation where uh, they'll want to move on from a few guys and they'll need to replace them with some others. Yeah, there's a
1: – I've been talking to a guy named uh, George Fitzwallis a little bit lately on Twitter. He's a, a writer about the uh, – the lightning for uh raw charge. And, you know, what are the things that we've been kind of talking about? Just cause you know, he's been kind of doing some dumb like sports gambling and stuff as a way to kind of have a little bit more fun, kind of learning the rest of the league and seeing some of the teams he doesn't see and stuff like that. And we, he's been talking about the ducks a little bit with me. And, and one of the things he said is that like you, you do kind of, when you see a team like this, you know, that is so young and overperforming, it, it is uh, worth it sometimes to go out and do like those kind of low risk buys, like you're saying, as a reward and being like, look, we still want you guys to keep doing this. Like, we believe in you. We're just also trying to do it. And so like, this is going to sound really stupid, and it's going to bring one of my favorite players up. But like, the one that I keep thinking about is like, would you trade Henrique next year, uh, the twenty-three second, and Sam Steele for Phil Kessel? Like, what you do is bring in an expiring contract, which gets, which, you know what I mean? You're trading Henrique's contract for an expiring contract, but the other thing that you're doing is you're using two assets in the second and Sam Steele to bring in a high-level offensive player. But if if part of that transaction is getting Henrique off of your books if going forward. It, to me, as someone who was always looking for an excuse to get Phil Kessel in Anaheim, it, it it's the kind of move that I think makes a lot of sense just because it kind of does two things at once. One, clear up any kind of future space, but two, it does reward this team for how they're playing. Like, we're going to go get you a goal scorer. Like, you know what I mean? Like we fuck it. Let's push for it. Let's see if we can make the playoffs. If we don't, we don't, but fuck it, we're going for it. And yeah, man, that'd be so cool. Like I I just think those kinds of trades are very interesting to me. Um I yeah, I don't know. I just uh, yeah, but I don't know. I don't know where I was. No, going
2: but like I, I, it was just one I, those... I see what you mean. And and I think like that's a trade we talked about before the beginning of the season too. and it's one I think at that point I would have been more inclined to to go forward with. And the only thing I think here is is Having Adam Henrique's contract on right now, I don't think it interferes with any signings they're going to make in in this upcoming offseason. However, I can see it potentially being a detriment in the future. Like, if they re-sign Lindholm to an 8x8 eight eight or 75 half, half by 7 or whatever they end up re-signing him to, him, if they do, that eats up a lot of the cap space <laughs> that they have, the 11, 11 almost $12 million cap space they have. Um, if you trade Manson, which I think they still might... You shed some salary cap there if you're not bringing any in. That's just over four. Raquel, again, uh, just over three and a half. So you are moving some cap space out there. I don't think it, it becomes a necessity to move Henrique per se, um, and it might be easier next year when he only has two years left if he's still playing as well. But, yeah, you do get into uh, some, some issues down the road with that contract in the sense that, you know, you have to resign Trevor Zegers in two years while Henrik would still be on the books for a further year, so that could be
1: And Troy Terry too, that's the yeah, other Troy one Troy
2: Terry and, and Zegers are both uh, need contracts 2023-2024 uh, 20, 20, 20, with Adam Henrik still on the books and Jakob Silverberg still in the books So mm-hmm. I, I could see that being something down the road but you, you you are right, like it might be better to make that decision now and sell high, if you want to say that on Adam Henrique playing well this year, because you don't know if that's going to happen next year or the year after that, right? So if you can get an offer yeah, now, yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know if I would necessarily give up Steele and a second to get his cap hit off the books because I think the way he's playing this year will entice some teams, um, and I, I don't think the way he's playing would the Arizona Coyotes would want to go anywhere near him right now because that would probably make them a better team <laughs> adding, adding Henrique but, and Steele, and they I want mean, they're in the Shane Wright sweepstakes for sure. But I think the sense of the trade in Paying a little bit to get rid of Henry's contract off the books, so it doesn't hamper any future signings, that that makes sense to me. Like I I could understand why they would potentially want to do stuff because you don't. The last thing you want to do is be handcuffed when you have to sign Troy Terry or when you have to re-sign uh, Trevor Zegras. Uh, you know, and and when you have to re-sign Jamie Drysdale, Jamie Drysdale is that same season, right? Like Ziegler, Terry, and Drysdale all have to be re-signed at the same time. Uh, if Ziegler, you know, he has this year, next year, to earn what could be a very, very nice contract for himself. Same with Drysdale, right? Even if it's on a bridge deal, it still is more, a lot more money than he's making now. And you gotta take that into consideration, and and I you know I have more confidence in Jeff Solomon taking that into consideration than than I would have Bob Murray, so we could see that. Uh, but I think one of them eventually, in Silverberg or Henry, you have to consider moving before you get to that point where it could impact your signings of Zegers, Terry, and Drysdale, because the way they are all playing, the way pro- they project for the future, it's gonna cost you a, a decent chunk of change to get all three of them under contract.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it is, it's, yeah, no, you're 100% right, it's crazy, man, like, I think, um, yeah, like, I, I don't want to, like, punt on steel, but my thinking is, you know, one, I don't know that Enrique is going to add 15 wins to Arizona, like, they still suck, um, and I think he just gives them somebody that, it's just a little bit easier to
2: put out there every night, and not... shitty about i don't know a younger player that was a former first round pick that you could see them wanting to get behind that potentially right so
1: yeah you know sam Steele and and i just think there's value there for them and and i think the thing like i get like you don't want to pay a second in sam Steele to move henrique but part of that is also paying to bring back um Kessel right and and if that's the case in that particular trade right I I think it's worth it because it does do two things like I said and I I do think this team if they keep this up you know even if some of the results kind of shake out a little bit differently you know they're obviously not going to go eight and one every nine games but like uh, there is something to be said for giving them something as a reward um for playing so well and putting this team in a position that nobody, but maybe the guys in the room thought this team was going to be in. And like, there's something to that. So, you know, I also think the fact of the matter is is you're going to have more and more guys, right? Like I don't know that Sam Steele does anything that there aren't guys in the system who could do or guys in this upcoming draft who can do. God, I feel like a guys and dolls thing. At um, some
2: point, like at some point, there's going to be guys on this roster. The younger players, the Steels, the Joneses, the us. You have to make way for some of the younger players. Coming up, the Perros, the Pastuavs, why, right? What, so, what? Whoa! Oh, why two of those three names don't need to be in that conversation? Well, What's wrong well like with you? I, I don't want to single out Sam Steele necessarily, right? I'm just saying in general, like there are going to be no, guys. You're 100 right. The other not one is all from two, which I am afraid, yeah. Of happening not all well. these guys can be here while the other guys come up. Like eventually. Some guys have right. to make way, and that's just the reality of the situation. And and obviously, Sam Steele is probably the most likely one at this point, just because he's further down the list than the other guys. Um, you know whether and, and it could be a situation where they trade him because he his contract up at the contract is up at the end of the season. Yes, he's an RFA, but they just don't think they're going to bring him back. Right, like it's the same situation. And why you would want to trade Raquel and Manson. You don't want to lose them for nothing. Same with Lindholm. So Sam Steele could potentially be in that discussion. If you don't think you're going to want to re-sign him or go through that process of re-signing mm-hmm. him, and you don't want to lose him for nothing, package him for something you'd like, or move him at the deadline or before to get some assets in that can help you longer down the road, right? And and I could see that like they're going to have to make a decision on some of those guys and do that at some point. And when Max Jones comes back in the lineup, right, like you're going to play him. And I don't, I don't know if it's this year. I don't, I can't remember the length of his injury, but I believe it's four to six months. So he's likely out for the majority of the season, if not the entire season. But even next year, right? Like, that's another roster spot. McTavish, back in the roster next year. Perot potentially, on the roster next year. So you're going to have t- to make a decision on more of these fours than just Ricard Raquel and what you're going to do with them. And that includes Henry. can include Steele and some of these other guys and what you're going to do with them. So... It does present an interesting situation. Uh, we do have a couple topics I still want to get to. I don't want to drag on too, too long, but we've, uh, we've mentioned Maxime Comtois a few times, so we should kind of talk about him a little bit more. Obviously, out six weeks after surgery to remove a small bone in his right hand. It's an injury that's been nagging him for a while. I don't think they really outlaid the timeline, but probably since near the end of last season, if not since the beginning of this year so it's it sucks that he's out and it sucks that he's out for six weeks but it it is a little bit encouraging in the sense okay now you can maybe explain why the points weren't there right the finish wasn't there for him um what i don't know how much pain it was causing him or how much discomfort it was causing him but if they had to you know get surgery surgically remove it it's not it's not small it was something that was bothering him and if you know it's a small bone in his right hand they had to remove if he was in that much pain or discomfort that does make it really difficult for him to do his job and put the puck in the back of the net and be an impactful player uh for the ducks offensively if he's going through that so hopefully that does mean when he comes back, he gets back to the the player we saw from him last year right like there's some encouraging signs there that at least we can explain this away potentially with the injury rather than oh, he's just regressed right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to leave it no. hanging there. But, yeah, no, it absolutely does that, right? What it does
1: more than anything for right now is it gives us a way to rationalize his lack of production early on. Um, you know, I think... Uh, I think it was Jake, Jake at Crash the Pond who made the comment as far as his underlying numbers are pretty close to the same as they were last year, and ultimately it's his finishing. Yep. I mean, look... <laughs> Having a broke a bone that needs to come out of your hand, like f- first and foremost, like I don't understand that sentence. Right? Yeah, they had to that remove was a small bone from his hand. Did did they remove a bone shard? Did they remove and replace a bone? Did he have an extra bone? Like I, there's so many questions that do not. I double take that I on have that,
2: that uh, sentence. About, it was weird. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's the best man i just i just want to know the particulars like you know like because I, I, in my in my heart of hearts i'm imagining like george costanza in shallow how where he's got like a tailbone like on his little hand right here or something <laughs> that's just so funny um george Costanza, jason alexander whatever it doesn't matter it's the that's same so person that. at this point Sorry. yeah um but yeah man like It's something, and, you know, it'll be interesting to see how it is when he comes back, but if nothing else, it it gives him a chance to kind of reset a little bit, too, um, mentally, and just be like, all right, I'm getting a fresh break, I'm going to get six weeks away, I'm going to stay in shape, I'm going to jump on the bike and lift weights and all that dumb shit. Uh, Exercise is stupid, just so everybody knows. Um, But more than anything, it gives him a chance to mentally reset and to come back into the lineup with, with a fresh slate you know yeah, what forget I mean? the like, first 13 the games point,
2: like, and just come back and say okay this is my start to the season now like this is yep yeah exactly. and, and i that's how i i honestly expect him to approach that too it's like let's not even think about it you know whether he wants to mentally say it was you know the injury was hurting him for the first 13 games or just let's not even think about it whenever he returns this game right here start of my year and i think that's how we should approach game it One,
1: yep yeah absolutely you know it, it'll be interesting to see how the lineup overall kind of takes shape um because you know like like we've said like that's two of the top 3 left wings on the team mm-hmm. are now out for a good chunk of the season and like 6 weeks is it's early enough now that 6 weeks isn't terrible um and if that means he's coming back in early January, then that, that works as well with just, like, having him ready going into the trade deadline and being able to get a full picture of all the players and forwards on the teams and how they fit and things like yeah. that. But I, I, I am very curious to see who does or doesn't step up here, who does or doesn't get called up here, who, you know, who takes advantage of the situation. You know, we saw that with McTavish that... uh who was it? It wasn't Jones missed the first game. Uh somebody missed the first game and It was Jones. Yeah, it was, was, Jones, able to, yeah, I, it was yeah. Jones, right? He jumped into the you know, into the into the lineup all of a sudden and he made something of it, right? It, to the point that we're all sitting here going, Should they keep the eighteen year old in the NHL? Like he he did exactly what you wanted him to do with that nine game stretch, which is he made it a decision. Or he made it a, a real decision about what was best for him and for the team. And keeping him up wasn't absurd. I, we covered it. We think they made the right decision for a number of reasons. But it wasn't absurd to think him staying around for the rest of the season was on the table. Um, somebody else is going to get that opportunity now. And I'm going to be very curious to see who it is, if any of them, that makes something of that opportunity. To take this next six weeks and go, I matter. I'm
2: here. So
1: it'll be interesting. Yeah.
2: Let's, let's talk about the guy most likely to get the jump then from San Diego. um, And that's Jacob Perreault. I would love to see him up. I still do want to see him up at some point playing fourth line for the ducks, but it's probably when uh, Nick DeLore and Derek Grant are no longer with this team, but Future, future problems for us, or future, I guess not problems, but future uh, bonuses for us to talk about is Hunter Drew playing for the Ducks. But it is Jacob Perot is the guy I do want to talk about. My news is a little bit del- late now because he was on an eight-game point streak until he failed to register a point for the goals in their, I guess, afternoon game today. They beat the Barracuda 2-1, to but... Failed to register a point, so he was on an eight-game point streak where he posted six goals and seven assists for thirteen points. He leads the goals with God. fifteen points in I think it's twelve games now, and one of the goals he scored was wow. the Michigan, which was a lot of fun and uh, so smooth.
1: Yeah, dude, I, I, I've never heat, seen a like...
2: I haven't seen a right-handed guy pull that off. Like, and I I, just, I don't know what yeah. it's always lefties that I see pull it off. It's the first time I saw a righty pull it off because you always see it to the other side of the net, like the mm-hmm. the blocker side for most goalies. I'd have to double check the clip, but I think he pulled that off on the glove side for the Colton, which yeah, is a lot yeah. harder to pull off. And yeah, it was just super smooth. Like it was, he'd been practicing that. That was clean.
1: Yeah. And I think the thing for me that made it stand out is how quickly his stick went from pressing down to moving up. You know what I mean? Because, like, even when, like, Svechnikov does it or, like, we've seen Trevor Zegres try it and stuff, like, there is a little bit of that extra step. And this was just, like, he just picked it up and threw it in. Like, it, there was no hesitation, yeah. seemingly, between when he was like, this is what I'm going to do to when it happened. And I thought that was incredible. But, you know, it, that's maybe the most fun play he's had on this streak. It is far from the most impressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, his his ability to just be a difference maker below the faceoff dots out wide is huge Um, you know he's a player that should get a real chance in some of those one-timer spots when he comes up and it'll be very interesting to see and and I I would love to see him come up I would almost hope that he Doesn't come up until the end of the season after the trade deadline, when they've moved on from Raquel or Henrique or Silverberg or somebody of that nature, any games that they're going to bring him up, it doesn't matter because there's no nine game thing for him. It's just up and down. He's waiver exempt. It doesn't matter. So, if if he's the guy who comes up and he gets two or three games, I'll be very curious to see what he looks yeah,
2: like. There's not many guys on the list in front of him, right? Like we've seen in the past where the, the Ducks have had like two or three favorites from the goals that they always, that they call up. Sam Carrick was one. Vinny mm-hmm. Letary is still one. But right now, like I look at that team and I think it's really Vinny Letary. Like Vinny Laterry is still their favorite as as a guy to call up if there's injuries to bring up. I, I think if there's enough or, you know, there are injury problems in the future and, Perot is still playing the way he is. I, I could see him getting a call-up sooner than I would have thought before. Like, I I mentioned this, I think, a few episodes ago on, on Ducks Morning Brew on when we could see a call-up from him, and I said, it's probably after the trade deadline, when we move Raquel, like you said, later on in the season. That tends to be what the Ducks normally do. But I, I could see that being earlier if they go through some injury problems and they need a guy to come up and rejuvenate this offense, and he's still playing that way. I could see it, and I'd be all for it because Perot has become—he's always been this player, but he's just taken like a this step forward in pro hockey. Like just such a complete offensive weapon for the Gulls this year. He can score from anywhere. He's got the one-timer threat. He can score from any circle. He can score from the backhand. He can get in front of the net like he did with his goal in the other game and, and pick up rebounds. He's a great playmaker, so he can use the the shot, uh, the shot, I guess, scare for the defenders to open up a lane. And, and get a pass across to his teammates. So he's just become a complete weapon. Now he's drawn penalties. He's been a pest for the goals, which is something I didn't see from him um, really in junior at all. Like he looked at unengaged in Sarnia, which made sense because they were a horrible team. But he, he's just become the player who, like everybody hoped that he would, and why a lot of people thought he was a steal for where the Ducks got him in the draft and obviously now he has to make the step up to the NHL level but like the progress from last year to this year has just been phenomenal like he is by far the Ducks are be- the goals best player and showing off all the weapons that had made people think he could have been a top 10 top 15 pick in this draft class he okay, is right up there with Pistuyov as one of my favorite players to watch and and you know look forward to to being in the Ducks lineup cuz you just Like you said, you just know where he fits, right? Like, you know Mm -hmm. you can put him in the one-timer spot in the power play. You can put him with a player like Zgris or even Getzlaff if he's still here. And he becomes the the shooter on that line, like a high-volume shooter. Like, that's one of the things, other than Raquel, the Ducks don't have a lot of right now is guys who just shoot the puck and that's all they do. Perot is that guy, a guy who will put up over 200 shots in the NHL season. Like, he is that type of player and i can't i can't wait for him to get in the lineup i'm so happy that he's playing as well as he is this year that he has like the confidence to be able to pull off plays like a michigan that he looks engaged at you know both ends of the ice he's making things happen he's driving play like this is everything you wanted to see from him i was hoping and and like obviously i want i'm glad raquel's back and i'm glad he's healthy i was hoping that potentially he wouldn't be ready for Monday and it presented the Ducks with an opportunity to just call up Perot and play him for a game and play him on the road. I know it's hard because <laughs> they're on the road and it would have been hard to call him up, but man, I was I was hoping they might had been put in a situation there where like they had no choice to, but to call him up, but uh, unfortunately we'll have to wait a bit longer, but it's been just such a fun run for him, and I know with some of the Gulls fans I've talked to this year, he's been a, a treat to watch down there.
1: Yeah, I, it's just a nice spot to be in right now, man,
2: you know, there's
1: Like, Braden Tracy has kind of had a resurgent year in San Diego, which is so nice, Um, you know. And, like, it just feels like the Ducks have guys at every level of the organization right now who are having some level of impact wherever they are, and that is huge. Um, You know, we talked about this on, on the Prospect show, but, like, even outside of the ones who are getting all the, the love right now which is pastyoff and Perot there are guys who are playing very well um, and to have someone like Perot just be so visibly so visibly full of potential is, is just remarkable I think because you know that that that's the pick from the David Backus trade not a lot of there, let me say this there are are legitimate complaints about the process of the David Backus trade, which involves Andre Kasha going out and things like that, that I, I I think are fair. But having seen the way David Backus was able to just be a good player, man, I just liked him on the team. Like, I just thought having him around had value. And then to also have the return be the pick that became Jacob Perot, and to see him doing the things that that make taking on a $4.5 million contract for an extra year worth it, right? Like, this is exactly what you're hoping for, is you get somebody who drops or somebody who has that singularly high-end skill set, which for Perot, everybody was just like, yeah, he's got the shot. The question will be the rest of it. Well, we're seeing the rest of it now. So this is exactly why you bring in a guy like David Backus in exchange for a player like Andre Kasha who fucking fun, man. He was so much fun to watch play. He was a blast to watch it. The injuries just made it an untenable situation. Um, And so to see Jacob Perot be playing this well right now and and really be the main guy in, in San Diego is huge and it it should be very encouraging um, for everyone involved. I, I don't know what you want to get to next, but I did kind of want to talk about Dallas Eakins a little bit if you have any interest. Yeah, in the that. only
2: other thing I, I was going to get into was what does the roster look like for Monday? What uh, Eric Stevens solved that puzzle for us earlier in the night by saying Ricard Raquel is going to be back playing with Zegers and Milano, so there's not too much to get into and dig into for that anymore. So other than the weekly predictions, that's it. So let's let's go into Dallas Eakins. What do you want to talk about?
1: So, real quick, just so everybody can enjoy what our notes are. It says, the thing is literally, what does the roster look like for Monday? Bullet point under it. Ducks at 11 forwards unless Raquel is ready to go. (laughs) Need to call someone up, likely Letieri, but maybe Perot? Well, look who's ready to go. Turns out everything is not fun. At least we Uh, got the news
2: beforehand this time, so we didn't have to walk back on it immediately (laughs) after the podcast. Usually we get this stuff after we've recorded, and then it's like, okay, all of that meant nothing now. But, hey. That
1: would have been great, because it would have been all right. Uh, welcome to Monday's Morning Brew. <laughs> First thing we're going to talk about: Ricard Raquel's healthy. <laughs> um, but the the thing I wanted to talk about, uh, as far as Dallas Akins is concerned, is is uh, we mentioned earlier, uh, Brett, in Discord and stuff, and on Twitter, we've had this conversation a little bit, and I'm just very curious where people are at with the conversation as far as Dallas Akins. Brett makes a very fair point, which is the team was bad last year, and it's Dallas Aikens' fault. The team is better this year, and he has nothing to do with it. Now, the staff is completely revamped. Some of these young players have clearly taken a step up, but a lot of them have done so in less games this year than they played last year entirely. So I don't know that it's one of those things where it's like, all right, they hit 150 games. Now let's see them turn it on. Um, And, and so I just think that's, that's that's a perfectly fair thing. At the same time, we have seen deployment issues. We have seen lineup issues. We have seen this team at times not necessarily look prepared for what was right in front of them and i don't know what to do with this because my stance on akins has been i think he's a great coach for what he is right now the next time they make the playoffs i don't think he's in, he's in, he's behind the bench and, and that feels almost like just riding the fence a little bit and not really committing either way so i'm just kind of curious where you're at with akins and where he fits in and how this year what this year, if anything, says about him?
2: Yeah, I, I agree with Brett, and I, I think it's unfair to say he was at fault last year and then not give him any credit this year. I, I think if you're going to be in the stance that it was completely his fault or was the majority was his fault last year, then you you can't you you have to then give him some credit this year. You can't say that he he's not um, at, you know he doesn't have any any stake in what the Ducks have done this year because he does, and they have a revamped coaching staff which I think has helped. Um, the, the thing for me that always, that I always go back to is is you know the belief in the organization that they felt they had to get somebody else to support him because they didn't feel like he could do it on his own. That always just gave me a weird feeling on if Dallas Akins could be the main guy behind the mm. bench and the the you know the head coach to lead the Ducks to content you know, to contention again and to be a Stanley Cup contending team if he could actually do that. Maybe it's just development for him as a coach that. He gets this experience, and these experienced guys to work with him. Eventually, he'll add these things to his his arsenal as a coach and become, you know, a better coach for it. He deserves credit for what the Ducks have done this year, but I'm in the same boat as you. I just don't know yet if he is the right guy, and it's because this is the small sample size we've had of success from the Ducks. Is this eight game winning streak? Right, like that is that is kind of it. It's two bad seasons a not so great start to this year and an eight game winning streak right so like it's not enough for me <laughs> to be like oh yeah that, that that's he, it yeah he he deserves credit for their play this year for sure they've their power plays been better their offense has been better there's been some you know lineup decisions that he's had where i've like okay it's not that great but i can't sit here and say he's the guy yet when it's the eight game winning streak is the only good thing that's happened Right? Like it's, it's really, really hard to, and to say he's the guy he deserves the credit 100%. He deserves credit for it, but he will, he will not be the guy for me until there's a little longer runway of progress and success. Um, I, I He gets a shot for sure. Um, But I, I, I'm interested to see when the interim tag is removed from either Jeff Solomon or given to somebody else, what they do. Because that will be the the decision yeah. point there, and maybe it's another year of Dallas Aegon's to for a new GM to see what they have. But Jeff Solomon will have has been with the organization now, and will be with the organization for the entire season. He'll get a a good look as a, as the GM of what Dallas Aegon's can provide, and he'll make that decision at the end of the year. So we'll we'll see. But I I just I'm not convinced yet. I need more because it's yeah it's no eight games sure. versus yeah. what uh, almost a hundred. So. Dude,
1: that is. That is the funniest thing in the world. Like, that is just the way that you said that was so perfect. It's been two bad seasons, a bad start, and an eight-game win streak. And it's like, yeah, that's that's accurate. (laughs) There's no part of that that isn't true. Um, You know, and I I guess if you wanted to defend him, you would say that even during the rough start, they were still playing uh, better than they were at any point in the last two years. Um, And they look like they're getting better every night. Uh, it's interesting because I think the thing that you were talking about with bringing in someone to kind of be above him and help him as a consultant, like that's never been as big of an issue to me as it has been to other people because I understand why someone might find that valuable. I think the thing that made that difficult is that it was Bob Murray and there were reports, even when Aikens was hired, that Bob Murray wasn't sold, that he was the guy. So it always felt like he was kind of just putting that there as far as, like, breaking case of emergency. Um, the other thing that's interesting to me is it was Daryl Sutter. And I don't know if anybody – uh-oh. Uh, anyway, but uh, Daryl Sutter's been doing a really good job in Calgary. So, I, I you know, I think the idea that Daryl Sutter, who is surely a like-minded hockey brain to Dallas Akins, as far as the type of hockey that they want to play, like, I, I definitely understand that he could be a valuable piece, but Bob Murray always kind of felt like it undercutted any validity to that. Um, and yeah, like, I just, the stuff that I think he's good at isn't really the stuff that I think is making this team good. I think it's the stuff that while this team is getting good is valuable. I think he's a very good communicator. I think he does a good job of creating a system and environment that prioritizes effort and accountability without it ever feeling like boot camp. Yeah. And I don't think that can be understated. I think having a guy who can come in and help young kids become professionals has a lot of value. The question is, is what, if any, value does that have at the NHL level? And is he just cut out to be
2: a high-end AHL coach? I have a comparison that I know you will appreciate maybe more than anybody here. But he reminds me a lot of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer for Manchester United, <laughs> in that he has been brought in to usher in a new era after a really poor period for the team. He's great with the kids. He's a great guy in the locker room. He gets a well gets along well with the rest of the players and everything. But when it comes to tactically put together you know a, a team or a, a play style that is going to bring this team to contention it just doesn't click and and he can't do it on his own right like i i know that might not that might not mean something to a lot of you uh for me it like it's just like the perfect comparison of of two coaches in different sports and and what they do Uh, I, I think Dallas Higgins is a great guy in the locker room. I think he's a great, like you said, a great guy for where this team is right now and where they have been to transition him out of this period and, and kind of get everybody engaged and bring the young players along. I'm not sold yet. If he is the guy that is going to be out, be able to out coach another, you know, top coach in this league. I don't know if he's that guy. Um, We'll see. I mean, you know, he he's got the rest of this year to to prove me wrong, and potentially next year and, and further on, to, to prove it to Jeff Solomon and the rest of the Ducks staff. We'll we'll see. Um, I, I'm willing to be proved wrong because I would love for him to succeed. I don't I don't have anything against him. I want to see him do well. I would mm-hmm. love for the Ducks not have to, to have to go throughout the coaching carousel again and find somebody. That is yeah. going to be the right fit, because j- just because Dallas Aikens isn't the right fit, and they go out and find another guy, there's no guarantee that whoever they bring in is going to be the right guy. You know, is it Stothers? Is it somebody from the outside of the organization? Who knows, right? Who if the second guy who comes in is going to be any better, and be bring
1: able... in Claude, bring in Claude,
2: Cla- Claude Julian. <laughs> yeah,
1: dude. I honestly, if you think about it, looking at the, like I always thought Claude Julian was an interesting choice because structurally he just solves so many issues. The problem with Claude Julian is, like, that dude's not taking another job. Like, that dude's still getting paid by Montreal. Yeah, I'm so sorry. Give me a second. Hey, get over it.
2: Um, it's all good. We'll, we'll we'll slice that out of the, the audio.
1: Fine. He's an asshole.
2: Uh, but
1: the thing with Claude Julian that didn't make sense is, I don't know why he would leave wherever it is he's getting paid by Montreal to hang out. Um, to coach a team that wasn't mm-hmm. either contending or able to quickly become a contender. And I, again, we'll know more in 20 games when we see how for real this is. But if you said so right now, like if this kind of rough trajectory held throughout the season, just as far as level of play, not even results, I think you could make an interesting case that Claude Julian might be interested in this job. Um, but the thing for me, like, and Jimmy will appreciate this is I've always, actually both Jimmy's well. Um, I've always seen Aikens as uh, a Vinny Del Negro type. Vinny Del Negro was the coach the first couple of years in Chicago before Tom Thibodeau got there. And he was the coach for the Clippers before Doc Rivers got there. And in both cases, he was the guy who got those young players to a point where they could then take that next step under an, a high-end coach like Tom Thibodeau proved to be like at one point people thought Doc Rivers was. Um, and I think that's the thing that's that's kind of it's always felt like is he's kind of like, I don't know, like he's like – he's like the first serious relationship you have before you get married kind of a thing. Like, he just, all of the things that he does are valuable, but I don't know that, like, we were talking about, like, and to your point with Ollie, like, I don't know that he makes the roster good enough, just on his own, as far as a net impact. I don't think he makes the players better enough to warrant being fine with... To put so much stock in the kind of intangible or off ice things that he does um i I just don't know that there's enough there because this roster isn't there yet and until it is i i don't know that he moves the floor enough to keep him around
2: yeah and and maybe it's just like because he doesn't have as much background and history and experience as a guy like cool julian we just don't I just don't have that confidence in him yet to be that guy, right? And, yeah, and that could exactly be just right. it. It's a sample size issue. It's yeah. just part of it. And, and mean, his and first he could coaching he was,
1: was in Edmonton, which was a fucking disaster.
2: Yeah. Like John Cooper came from the AHL to the Tampa Bay Lightning and no experience. And then obviously took them to where they are now. Right. Uh, and walked into a pretty good team in, in the Tampa team that he walked into, but brought, Rise. brought them to a whole nother level. And, I will. I am willing to give Dallas Aikens the benefit of the doubt that he could be that guy. I, I'm not willing to say it now because there there just hasn't been enough time. Um, or, you know, sample size or, you know, enough for me to really see that he's the guy. But I, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. Like, he hasn't done anything wrong, in my opinion. I, I think as any coach, there's some decisions that he's made that, you know, I haven't agreed with or the fans haven't agreed with. But there's a reason he's the coach of the Ducks and we're not, right? Like, he he has done enough to get to that point to get the job right. that people felt like he could be the guy to lead the Ducks to the next level, that I'm willing to to give him the benefit of the doubt, and when the Ducks get better, to to have him have the ability to coach a better team and get that chance, because up until this point, like he hasn't been able to coach a good team at the NHL level. He coached a, an abysmal Oilers team a, and a not so great Anaheim Ducks team over the last couple of years. So this is the first, arguably good team, or what looks like a good team, that he's been able to to coach. So we'll we'll see. <laughs> God, just burying this poor guy, and we're not even trying to. Um, All right, I, we got to get to the weekly predictions here because we're
1: almost yeah, because fucking almost two hours. Okay, um, let's do so that. We yeah, got mon- Monday at
2: Nashville, Wednesday at Colorado, Friday versus Ottawa at home, Sunday versus Toronto at home. What do you have? I am.
1: You know what? I I will say it's an up down up down week. I will say win loss win loss. Uh, I will say. That they beat Nashville in overtime, lose to Colorado in regulation, beat Ottawa in regulation, and probably lose to Toronto, uh,
2: badly in regulation. Oh, you don't have any faith in that Leafs game, eh? It's a back to back. It's a back to back.
1: William Nylander and John Tavares on that team?
2: Just it is a back to back for uh, Toronto, I believe. Oh, they play. Oh out no, of they right don't. Before? Sorry, never mind. It, it it but it is a um. California road trip. So Wednesday, Friday, Sunday, L.A., San Jose, Anaheim. Not being kind to, to the Leafs in the past, but they are a great team. So I, I, I get where you're coming from.
1: See typical Toronto media just out here shitting on the little Anaheim team, the small market Sunbelt team talking about Toronto. So predictable. Ridiculous.
2: Um. Yeah, I, I honestly, the, you, you kind of, I, I got the same prediction as you. Uh, win loss win loss. I, I think it's a a tight, tough game uh, in Nashville, but I think they pull out the win. I think they rebound from a, a good game in Carolina or against Carolina. Colorado is just starting to pick up to where we thought they'd be. They, their last four wins. This is the score lines: seven one against Vancouver, six two against San Jose, four two against Vancouver, seven three against Seattle. So and and that's without Nathan McKinnon. So they are. Getting back to the team that uh, we expected from their, their third in goals per game, but they're twenty third in goals against average. But Kemper dude, their
1: save percentage is so bad. Yes. I, I can't believe I'm gonna say this. But Pat is so close to being right, dude. They really might need to trade for John Gibson. I will Darcy say this Kemper,
2: so sucks. Kemper four of the last five starts for Kemper, other than the start the last start against Seattle, above nine twenty five save percentage. So he has had hey, solid real quick. Starts. I can't remember
1: who was the goalie in Colorado last year.
2: Hey, Grubauer.
1: And w- how is he doing? Not in Colorado this year. Not good at all. Okay, I just want to double double check that. I'm not sure that I trust four starts of Darcy Kemper, who I don't think is good. Um, His numbers. I thought here, he yeah. would be better
2: than he has been.
1: Um, but yeah. it's. He hasn't been good. I don't, I don't think
2: he, he might be the long-term option for Colorado, but he's at least been better, which makes me think that the way they're rolling offensively is going to be a, a, a tough game. I mean, that they win. Gibby needs to be on, on his ball that game, and the Ducks offense is going to have to show up. That's going to be a tough one. I think they ultimately lose that one. I think it could be an overtime loss. I think they beat Ottawa, and Toronto is going to be a tough one, even though it's at home. They've been rolling as of late. Uh, Campbell, I think, almost posted back-to-back shutouts. Um, and Toronto's won five games in a row, and they've only lost once in their last ten games. So they're ten and one in their last eleven games. So they they're on a roll. And as I say that, they're losing to Pittsburgh tonight, but <laughs> it will be uh, it will be a tough one. So I got win loss win loss, which would actually be a pretty decent week for the Ducks considering the the, the teams they're facing. The only must win and. What should be a win for the Ducks is Ottawa on Friday. I think the other ones are, are all toss-ups, uh, which is a pretty good position for the Ducks to be in when we're talking about going to Nashville, going to Colorado, and playing Toronto is toss-ups, not automatic losses. Yeah,
1: I I, I think uh, almost had back-to-back shutouts is going to be up there for me with uh, can see an American player play for the U.S. Olympic team. Yeah. Those are just perfect. I'm, but yeah, no. I think
2: I, I need to at. I need to to address that too. I I meant to say we will need, or it'll be nice <laughs> to see an American-born Ducks player play in the Olympics. And I just butchered it and said there an were American two of them player. already. No, I know, but again, to see it again, it's, oh, it's been oh, a while. Okay. Oh yeah. What well, Kessler and Howler were the last the game. two, right? Uh, oh, so no, you're telling me there would have been an American. Born Ducks player in the Olympics in the past two Olympics if they could have gone.
1: Yeah, dude, fucking John Gibson was the best goalie in the league. There definitely would have been him. He would have been no, there. What I'm, I'm, exclu- I'm the
2: excluding goaltenders. Come on. Oh get that. <laughs> you're
1: a fraud. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, that's about it, I think. We're almost at two hours. Nobody wants to be around us that long. Um, thank you again, everybody who came out live for this, for everybody who listens to it whenever Eddie lets you uh thank you very much for giving us your time and your attention uh i believe we're going to try to do a thing tomorrow yeah. but that might not be true pucks and bruce uh, is supposed to
2: be recorded tomorrow um depending on everybody's availability pat and jason i think have both said that they're good to go for tomorrow so we're hoping to record that which will be good uh that that'll be on our patreon so patreon.com slash uh we got a lot to talk about on that one, a lot of NHL topics, as well as some ducks related topics that we covered today. And we've covered in the past that we just haven't had the chance to talk with, with all four of us. So that should be a fun one. It should be a long one. I would expect too. um, I know our shows always goes so long as we creep on two hours here, but, uh, I know We're we, studs. we always, we always try and keep Pat, uh, on as long as possible just to get him out of his shell a little bit. So, <laughs> uh obviously as
1: uh as we said eddie's been doing the morning brew things which just rocks like i i, I tell him all the time and i will say to anybody who listens, it's the coolest thing we do it is such a nice way to start the day i've been listening to him when i walk my dog in the morning it's a blast uh everybody should go like and subscribe on youtube so eddie gets the love for that uh maybe eventually he'll let the rest of us do it and stop saying we can't help um. Other than that, we are going to try to do another Patreon watch along for a game soon, which will then get cut off at two hours, and everybody will overreact because it's Ducks fans, and I love you all so much. Uh. But other than that, I think that gets it. Uh. I think that does it, eh, Eddie. Yep.
2: Lots of pastuov talk for Monday. So, Ducks morning Crew we go. is going to be all about Sasha Pastuov, So stay tuned for that one. But yeah, thanks everybody American for American hero Sasha. Yes, uh, maybe American Will Junior hero Sasha Oh. <sighs> Sasha versus McTavish. We're, we're be first, like Zegas time. versus Drysdale, so mm-hmm. 2.0. Anyway, um, as we creep over the line of two hours, thanks, everybody, for coming out. We will be back next week with a weekly show and back with Ducks Morning Brew on Monday. Take care, everybody. Later, everybody.